0: To InsureTech Insider. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today's show is a new show. So, we're going to take a look at the biggest news stories in insurance and InsureTech from the last few weeks. I'm joined today by Nigel Walsh. How are you today, Nigel?
1: I'm fantastic, thank you very much. Exciting to be back. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, it's been a while since we've done a, a group show, hasn't it? Um, we're also joined by some lovely guests, all of whom are making return visits. So, first up, we have Leah Nonninger, research analyst at Business Insider Intelligence. How are you today,
2: Leah? I'm um, very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Did I say your name right this time? Yes, you did. You okay. did indeed. For those who who listen, who don't listen regularly, A, Leah used to work for me, and B, I said her name wrong the entire time and she never corrected me. So... Everyone always does. And I'm she used to doing... work for <laughs> you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> literally. Yeah. So I'm. It's I'm actually Sarah? Is that
3: why it used to work for you? Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> she left. She was, I can't bear this anymore. Um, Next up, we have Oliver Ralph, the insurance correspondent from the FT. How are you doing today, Um, Oliver? I'm very
3: well, thank you. Thank you for having me back.
0: Uh, Wearing a suit. Somebody had to, I suppose. I
3: I always wear a suit to come and do these because I think it horrifies people. (laughs) We are seem to be horrified. He looks at the WeWork staff, sort of
0: looking up and down. Um, And last, by no means least, we have Andy Rear, Chief Executive at Digital Partners at Munich Re. Welcome back. Thank
1: you very much. Not
4: wearing a suit.
0: He's actually wearing a WeWork (laughs) t-shirt
4: They gave, it, they gave them out free on Monday. It's great. I can never resist a free t-shirt. What do you
1: get on Tuesday? You literally see topless on Tuesday. On...
4: That's right. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, if you pop round, we'll give you an Insure Insider t-shirt. How about that?
4: That would be fantastic. Yeah, That would be over. the highlight of my year.
0: All right. We can definitely do that. Right. Let's get started with the news. So the first story today is that Lemonade has finally launched in Europe. Uh, so the US InsurTech Lemonade, which I think everybody knows, um, is launching on the 11th of June in Germany uh, to provide contents and liability insurance in the country and also introducing its Policy 2.0. So Germany is the first country to offer the insurance startups consumer-friendly policy, which has been written um, in partnership with its customers. Lemonade described it as an easy-to-understand document designed for laymen instead of lawyers. Uh, the New York disruptors' entry into the German market is made possible with the help of AXA, Germany, which will share insurance relationships risk via a multi-year reinsurance agreement um the insurer interestingly has actually established its european headquarters in amsterdam and it's licensed and supervised by the dutch central bank but it's gone to germany first so um what do we think of this who wants to go first
1: i'm super excited by it (laughs) i'm i i've lemonade has been the darling of the marketing engine bar none So everywhere you go, it's held up there from AI and bots with Maya and everything else to say, this is what good looks like. And it was held out for ages ago. They never make any money. The ratios are all wrong. And I think they've all started to slowly, but surely prove. Actually, they are starting to improve on ratios. They've secured new funding multiple times. Actually, I think the last one was SoftBank. Um, and, And now here they are knocking on our front door
4: and what's interesting is in europe they can do they can do a lot more a lot more quickly it's a lot less regulated i mean where they were in new york they were so hampered by by new york regulation that it'll be interesting to see them see if they can really blow something together yeah they
3: seem they seem to have the intention of going across europe i think the amsterdam base is just somewhere that they can expand everywhere from once they once they they do Germany, they'll they'll move somewhere else. Isn't the, the single market great? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
1: well, let's not go there. It's too early. It's um, <laughs> like four minutes yeah. in. you
0: mentioned it. <laughs> Leah, I, I, want, I want to just ask you something. As somebody who's lived in Germany, what do you make of this sentence? We chose Germany for our first international launch because it combines a very traditional insurance industry with a very forward-thinking digital-first consumer.
2: Um, I can definitely agree with the um, with the former thing that you said. I'm not quite sure about the digital first part because I know Germany is still very much focused on doing everything the old way. So they don't really like doing contactless and things like that. So I'm not I'm not sure how ready the consumers really are for um, for uh, products like lemonades, but. I'm excited to see how they how they respond to this. That, that was my thought as well. Yeah. I have to say, I just check this with the journalists. These are the guys who so like yeah. stereotyping. stereotyping. Still, yeah. No, no, no. I think that's definitely definitely t- true. To Andy's
1: point, I'm interested in the can they be more successful in Europe than they were in North America? And I know New York is the toughest bar none, and we we heard the regulator together uh, last week from New York saying if you can get through us, you can get through anyone. I mean, and that's generally the attitude of um, state regulators. Does that mean they're going to be quicker, faster, more efficient, and do more than the, what they've done in North America?
3: Well, that's that's a good question, I guess, for the consumers as much as the regulators. I mean, they can—they've clearly decided that Amsterdam is the best base for for regulators, but but do German consumers want it? And there are already in short companies in Germany selling very similar products. Uh, I think one of them is GetSafe, which I think um, Munich is invested in. So they're not the first to this market. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they've got something really very different to what's already out there. Yeah.
2: Oh, I'm also wondering about the language barrier because obviously the whole app has to be in German now and they would have to have a different app for every single market they go into um, throughout Europe. So I'm wondering if that's some extra burden for them.
1: I, I don't see that as a huge burden. I think my bigger issue, we had this when we had uh, Jimmy from My Urban Jungle on, was actually will people buy insurance, period? Never mind, it's easy to do and you can consume it and whatever else. Our challenge was... Even if I did a straw poll around the office and it was five quid a month or five euros a month, people just aren't buying it. So I'm super excited by it. I'm more worried about folks just not buying insurance just yet. But
4: in Germany, they love insurance. The average German has
3: something like 13 insurance policies.
2: That makes sense. The, 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 <laughs> Sounds about right.
3: But, but are, but are they ready for a new way of thinking about insurance? This is this is my concern generally with a lot of sort of insurtechs. They're trying to introduce a whole new way of thinking about insurance, and I'm not sure people really want a new way of thinking about. Is Lemonade
1: thinking about insurance
3: in a new way? Well, it's trying to make it easier. I mean, the, the way Still they talk the same about thing their, it is a it is. But then they say, well, you Pink, know, the Nigel. excess profits go to to charity and this kind of thing, and I'm not sure people want to think too much about all of that.
0: It's it, it it will be it will be interesting to see and, and and I I'm particularly interested to see what the uptake is in Germany because that would not have been my you know going going into Amsterdam fine coming into the UK maybe got much busier market here so maybe they'd have more competition but it, it's a really interesting choice and I I also think that maybe we wouldn't be right to judge them on their success purely in Germany if Germany doesn't work I think we will invariably see them come into other countries to where do they try go to... next then
1: where would you go next
0: uh, I would you know what, I'd probably try the UK.
3: Oh, well, I, the, the, uh, the chief executive said Brexit gives him the heebie-jeebies, was his <laughs> word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so does it all to all of us? Yes. We, all, we all feel
0: that way about Brexit. Uh, I, well, I
3: wonder them. if they're Amsterdam-based, they might say, well, let's try Benelux or Denmark or Nordic countries, Ireland maybe, and think about the UK once it's clearer. I'm Ireland slightly puzzled
4: York. about AXA Germany being involved as well, given that didn't, didn't they take a lot of money from Allianz? And yes. Aren't Allianz quite big in Germany?
3: Well, isn't that the point? It's a, competi- it's a competitor. It's
1: just a reinsurance contract at the end of the day, surely?
4: Well, except of Germany are not known as a reinsurer.
1: But you have to then admire the guys for going after it and saying, we can enable this going forward and look at the risk we take. Absolutely.
4: Taking. And I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued as to how, how Allianz think of that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah the, the reinsurance thing is interesting because we, we talk about you know all these all these startups have to have somebody backing them you know underwriting the risk and this, we, we come back round and round and round to this all the time Um, you know the, the choice of partner is something as well that I you know I I didn't know that much I don't know much about the German market I honestly haven't looked at it that closely but how do they go about choosing the partners and do you you know does somebody like Lemonade come into Europe and go hey you know bidding war who wants us we're super successful or does somebody you know Lemonade uh, the, the European insurer, reinsurer is going to be like oh not sure
1: so, so, so two things on that one to Andy's question: um, It depends what division of the insurance company, and you know this from Munich I know it from where I am. Um, we might have seventeen different conversations and never know what's going on. Shouldn't happen, of course, but it does sometimes. So you the, mean
0: different conversations with different so this,
1: with different entities of the business? So you might have right. the digital partners, the, the reinsurance, the uh, the retail. I'm all having different conversations, but never. Talker, that would never happen, right?
4: Absolutely never happen in right, my okay. organization. Checking, I should deny that, right?
1: Yeah. So it would never happen in our place either, but it does. And to your second point, typically when you establish yourself in a new market or you're coming to market, you go out there and seek the things that you want, either investment capacity, um, paper, depending whether you're going to be a uh, direct consumer or you want to be an AR or an MGA, whatever else it might be, what you want, you then go out to market and say, I'm actually after X. And on the flip side, it's like a matching dating agency that says, well, actually, we've got capacity for this at the moment. And then you start the conversations.
0: Right, this may sound really stupid, but don't Munich Re underwrite Lemonade in the States?
1: We have a
4: portion of You have them. a portion yeah. of it.
0: And isn't Munich Re a German company?
4: We are indeed, <laughs> yes. a portion so, of it.
0: so I just, my brain was like, mm. I mean, I'm sure that, I'm sure it's much more complicated than that. I'm sure Munich re-US and, and Europe are, are different entities, but... Are you looking at me strangely? Yeah, uh,
1: nothing, uh, nothing to do with me. I can't <laughs> but, comment. Um, no,
0: no, but I just, it just, my instant thought was, well, that's just weird.
1: <laughs> but, but equally here, you might look at it and go, actually, we want to spread the risk, which is what it's there for in the first place. So you go, actually, we're not going to have all our eggs in one basket. We're going to spread it out accordingly against our partners. It'd be interesting to see if they're NACSA now, then take it into other countries, or they've got multiple partners in uh, across Europe.
0: Yeah, well, whether they go to a different provider in, in the UK or yeah.
1: That that that'd be quite interesting. The other point we've not mentioned, of course, in here is um policy two dot zero. And I my my understanding from what I've read and nothing else was that it hadn't gone so well previously in terms of um an open source policy because people still don't read them. So I'm not sure I'll be keen to see actually how successful a clearer, cleaner policy would look at If it's space.
3: down to four pages from 40, which I think is what they say, then I think they've got a better chance of people reading it at four pages than they did at 40.
1: And, and also, to Leah's point
0: earlier, how well does that translate into German? Like, if they've written it, you know, if they've written this beautiful, clear, four-page policy in the US, in English, even, even in... British people can understand US English but how well are Germans Mm. how well is that going to translate to German
2: yeah definitely I agree with that and um, I think it's a good effort on their side it's good to cut it down and make it easier to understand but I also agree that four pages doesn't necessarily mean that people actually read those four pages
1: I could not agree more (laughs) do you want to do a quick survey around the table to see who's read the policies (laughs) I'm sure the answer is zero Oliver don't let me down I scanned (laughs) it.
0: I think I made a printed policy somewhere.
1: (laughs) I got a book from one of mine, literally a 24 page, double printed, double sided. Here's your home policy. A4. It's, never been read
3: but as, as i understand it they, they haven't launched policy 2.0 in the states this is right this is the first one uh, which i also think is quite interesting why have they not been able to do this in the states whereas now they've got it through the the dutch regulator does that then give them the green light to do it everywhere
1: mm. well didn't uh, berkshire hathaway uh, launch three as well which was the three-page one with a filing that's quite large to go with it but there we are um but equally, it's about making it easy and simple to understand. But if it's three pages or 30 pages, I'm not sure people are going to read it. The expectation is set by the brand.
3: But do you think from three or four pages, they can get it down to one page, two pages? Or is that too how much?
1: Small, how
0: small a font do well, we joking? At what point
3: will people actually read it, I guess, is the question. Yeah. How short does it need well,
0: to be? I mean, how many people read terms and conditions on anything? So if somebody, I, you know, all this, I've been doing a lot of travel recently, and every hotel I go to, they're like, just date it there and sign it there. How many? I mean, we all travel for work. How many of us read every word on those pages? Never. Not yeah. really. And,
4: and 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 I think that's not really the that's not really the point because the problem with the policy document it's a legal document, so you have to define things like premium, but we all know what premium means. So I, the the question is is does the policy pay out when the customer expects it to pay out based on what they've said in the policy document sure but also in the marketing literature yeah. and and in their adverts and and everywhere else and what their competitors do and everything else as, as nigel said it's basically about the about the brand <laughs> but still it's they've, recogni- they've recognized they've recognised that this is an issue the issue of trust in insurance is important um, and it's important because insurers have not been able to solve it because they Uh, you know, we pay out whatever percentage, 99% of of claims, and then still people don't expect to get claims paid out. So it's very hard to know how you solve a problem like that. And maybe... Just doing things like Policy 2.0, just even just announcing it, even if nobody reads it. Maybe intent that's is, also intent helpful. Is good. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, just another point to the, the, the choice of the German market. So, particularly in Berlin, I know that they've just agreed to a rent freeze for five years because it's so hard to get an apartment in Berlin now, um, to, to rent an apartment. So, I'm thinking about the connection between, you know, we always say that in the UK, we don't have renters don't tend to get contents insurance. I'm wondering if the market is different in Germany because the housing market is very, very different in and of itself and whether there's kind of more encouragement to get content insurance because so many more people, correct me if I'm wrong here, Leah, but I think so many more people rent in Germany because it's cheaper. So you you expect to rent for 25 years. You Culturally, have-
2: yeah. it's
1: different, right? It's just people don't, yeah...
2: Yeah, I think people, when they, even when they rent a home, it's kind of, it feels more like their home rather than they're just renting it for like a year or two. So I think that sh- that could make a difference in how likely they are to get contents insurance. You'd be more likely if you yeah, were there for 25 exactly. years and you
0: had kids and everything else yeah. you might
1: be. I was chatting to one of the insurtechs here in, in the UK a few weeks back and in the, in the rental space. And I think the figure that shocked the life out of me was in the UK, the average rental period is now 18 years. And like, 18 years? I, I mean, I just... I mean, it was I, a number that was beyond my I recognition.
0: I haven't rented the same property for eighteen years, but like, you know, we're we're coming up close to sort of thirteen or fourteen years as a renter. Because not the same yeah, place. I know. I, I, but but I was know. shocked. I was
1: shocked by the number. I was really yeah. surprised as someone who was always the need to buy a house as soon as I possibly can and as soon as you can afford to. Yeah, whatever That's else. the problem, Nigel. <laughs> as soon as you can afford to <laughs> I but get it, it. I get it. But I didn't <laughs> live in London either, just for the record. <laughs> miles away.
3: It does touch on one of the one of the issues though, of of having cross-border insurance companies and and trying to take a concept from one country and expand it to elsewhere. Markets are very different and insurance is very different in every country. And maybe in the US, it's broadly similar across the States, but will Lemonade find that when they go to wherever is next, Denmark or Ireland or, or Sweden, actually, the kind of people there are very different, and the way they buy insurance is very different, and so maybe it's it's harder to take across borders.
1: I, I still harp on about, and I should be. I'm probably wrong, and it's very scary. The whole embedded and invisible. So if I'm going to rent in Germany, why doesn't he just come? You rent managed all-
0: fifteen minutes today, Nigel. Without saying, I didn't minutes.
1: say Brexit, unlike <laughs> someone else, Mr. Rear. Um, but I'm, I still think that this whole embedded into what I buy, and we've now seen one in uh, the, the football or, or the summertime ball recently in London. And so there's massive, great big signs saying everything included. Uh, you look at the Peugeot just fuel thing, everything included. Um, Jaguar Land Rover came out two weeks ago, everything included. It's all starting to get bundled up into one piece. But is that just a UK thing? So As I mean, in, Germ-
0: thing. In,
4: in Germany, you still have this—you um, still have this broker of record concept, where you have a broker who just looks after all of your policies. And and one of the games in shortex play is become a broker of record, so you don't even have to sell a policy, and you're already starting to earn money.
1: That's like trail commission in the IFA space, right? It is yeah. indeed, yeah. Good Lord.
4: Which is, you know, which is really long past in in the UK and the and the US, but it's still there so. In so
1: therefore, by by implication, if it works in Germany, it will work massively here.
0: Maybe. All right. Let's, let's move us on. Let, let's wait and see. I think maybe is a fair answer on this one. Um, so the next story comes from which um, it's that car insurance premiums have jumped by a third in three years. So UK drivers paid a third more for their car insurance in 2018 than three years ago, largely due to government policy changes. So the figures do show that changes to insurance premium tax and the personal injury discount rate have added an extra £7.8 billion across the whole market since 2015. Um, So basically, if the cost of IPT increases, then so will the cost of your car insurance. Um, In March 2017, the government decreased the discount ratio to minus 0.75% down from 2.5%, which basically means that the lump sum for a personal injury claim would be increased rather than discounted. So basically, insurers had to pay more money, so they're charging you more money.
3: (laughs) Um, On the other hand, if you get badly injured in an accident, you're going to get more money. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. probably is good if no, no. you're badly injured in an accident.
0: Sorry, I meant explaining the figures going up yeah. is, yeah. But yes, no, I completely agree. It's it's not a bad thing. I just wonder, one of the, the points that we have in our um, in our description and our, our notes to comment on is um, what impact does this have on the number of people driving? Because young drivers are saying that over half, 56% of young drivers say that the cost of running a car is just difficult. This is another thing. Like, I used to run a car very easily on a weekend salary. I'm not sure that that would still be possible.
1: I'm I'm with you on that. I, I I'd almost separate these things into two separate things. I think yeah. IPT on its on its own has been described as a stealth tax or whatever else you want. And to go from wherever it was, was it twelve percent right now? Is people don't see it as a tax that's gone up. They just see it as. It, my insurance has gone up. So whilst it might be clearly stated on all your documents... Policy else, documents that you don't read. But in fact, this is the front page or the email that you get. It says, including IPT, which I never used to notice before, but now you really do because it's it's a decent amount of money. Um, I think you should separate these two things out. And people generally don't. So when my generally my mum called me and said, my insurance has gone way up. I said, actually, insurance hasn't changed too much. Your IPT has gone up and here's the actual difference that it made. And they just don't see it.
0: So what, what is IPT for... for- People who don't fully understand it. Oh, all of us. Oh, it's like it's
3: VAT, but for insurance, right? Basically, see, and some people think it's going to go up eventually to the same rate as VAT, and all be standardised. And others are trying to get it banned entirely because it's a stealth, horrible tax.
0: (laughs) Okay, we we had James York on recently, and we went down a tax rabbit hole for about ten minutes. (laughs) We're not doing that, and let's not do that today because I just by the end of it, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Um, So I mean, the interesting point I think for me, you know, if you're looking at car insurance premiums. If we're talking about getting people to buy insurance, I mean, car insurance obviously is mandatory, so it's slightly different to content insurance. But anything that gets more expensive, particularly now, particularly with the way a lot of people in the UK are feeling, is 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 going to have an impact on people's ability to drive and then to get around. So I, I wonder. If, is.
3: The, the other thing to mention about why car insurance is going up, as well as the personal injury rate and the amount that they pay out for people who are seriously injured cars are changing and becoming more expensive to repair. There's more gadgetry in them. Uh, A bumper's no longer a piece of rubber. It's got sensors in it these things are great as if you're driving a car but one needs repairing suddenly it gets more expensive
0: yeah i mean my my the car i used to run on you know a, a weekend salary when i was 17 was a ford ka and a white van man once pulled the bumper off my car by driving past it getting its tow bar attached to the bumper and just pulling it off and we took it to a garage and the guy just went it's all right we just clip it back on again i
3: don't know you yeah. managed
0: to do that now there's no electrics in no, or anything i
3: think it's more now uh, yeah No, because the 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 components cost more. The people who fit the components have to be better qualified. And it takes longer, so you need a higher car for longer. Add it all up and it's just a much more expensive thing than it used to be. But
1: the, but if you look at the overall size of the motor market generally and take into account all the other factors, motor insurance is going to be decreasing over the next 20 or 30 years anyway. To your point, less people driving, less people passing their test. we got a guy I was chatting to in the office just the other day. Uh, 28, um, moving out of London for the first time has never had a driving lesson. I mean, and for me, that was like alien because the first thing I did when I was seventeen was run out the door and get a driving license at eight o'clock in the morning. Do you don't have a driving
2: license? Do alien. No, I don't. Um, Cause lived here for four years, never had the need to to drive. Yeah, but if you're
1: if you're city based, I I, I, yeah. I you know, I've I I've not owned a car for five years um, and worked fine on train, uh, tube, bicycle, et cetera, et cetera. But then things happen and where kids get whatever else. But you you end up having a car again. But in the city, I I, I totally get it. He's now moving out of the city family on the way he's gone, my wife said we to get a car. Yeah,
2: that's why I have to stay here forever. <laughs> <laughs> have you f- filled in your forms? We, we went to the B word again.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think it, it's reflective of the whole industry changing as a whole and it's, it's, we, we shouldn't really be surprised by it.
3: Um, the, the, the question now, I think is when, when you reach the point at which all the technology in cars which drives up prices now actually starts to reduce the number of accidents yes. and, and so starts decreasing the amount of I, wonder, I if anybody's.
0: Flames. I haven't seen any. Has anybody seen any accidents,
1: motor accident statistics lately? I'm trying to find them here. I've actually got. We published a piece on it just a few weeks back, talking about accident rates, uh, cost per claim, um, the the exact same points you're making about the the damage per vehicle and what it's going to go and do. But if you look at it per million miles, as opposed to anything else, it starts to get quite interesting. But I think it's. Uh, if you look at all the predictions that are out there, it's it's.
0: Is the answer not yet, but likely in future,
1: without question? And every chart you get that you look at, whether it's us or any other research out there, the premium for the motor market is smaller then than it is now. So even if you change the type of driving from manual to autonomous to semi-autonomous, whatever else, no matter what you do, the size
3: of the pie is smaller.
1: Right.
2: Okay.
3: That's a huge long-term issue for insurance companies, given the, the amount of the overall insurance spend taken up by motor insurance is huge. Yeah, yeah so, so it's so existential. Yeah.
0: Oh, dear existential are we going to see <laughs> crises among insurers
4: oh i think i mean if you look at you look at most of the big personal lines brands i mean not just in the uk but across europe they're uh, almost all of them are dominated by by motor insurance
0: and is that because motor is a requirement just intrigued us to that yeah
4: it's uh, and therefore it's just well two things actually one it's a requirement so so it has bigger penetration but secondly uh, it's also expensive Right. Yeah, your motor insurance premium is much higher than your contents insurance premium. Yes. yes. So, <laughs> uh,
0: I just thought that my head in the sums of my head, it was like. Yeah.
4: So, your, so your motor insurance for for your average typical personal lines of insurance, motor insurance is is what pays for most of your overheads. It's what pays for your advertising. So, all of your other lines of business, even if it's not direct cross sell, they somehow hang off motor insurance. And I I agree with Oliver. I think it's. Um, in the long run, motor insurance is going to entirely disappear from personal lines or more or less to entirely disappear from personal lines, you know. There'll always be some guy driving his 23-year-old van, but that is not going to sustain you if you're, you know, if, you, if you're a Viva UK or somebody.
3: There's an interesting tussle going on around how you insure driverless cars and whether the insurance will be a sort of product liability policy or a, a personal policy as it is now. And all the personal lines insurers are pushing very hard to try and make the insurance more of a personal lines it's policy difficult. as it is now yeah
0: okay so so hold that thought because the next story is from about zigo raising 42 million dollars to help fund european expansion so zigo is a startup which allows uber and deliveroo couriers and drivers to pay um, for commercial vehicle insurance by the minute um which i think is to me, is sort of linked to that point about changing the way in which we're driving, changing the way in which insurance, it's not driving, but, but what do you say? You call it, Anadha, mobility. Um, you know, so so Zego was founded by two former Deliveroo employees, in fact. Um, it allows workers uh, to pay for commercial insurance only when they need it. So a lot of those people riding for Deliveroo and Uber are actually only driving four hours a day, two days a week, or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, So the CEO chief executive, Sten Saar, probably saying that wrong, I apologize, um, is the former operations director of Deliveroo who said his business can dramatically reduce insurance costs for couriers when compared to traditional commercial insurance. So this is same but different. I think in my mind, we're talking again about the, the changing, transforming mobility insurance industry. And it looks like maybe this, if that pie that you're talking about, Oliver, is getting smaller, maybe there's other pies
3: that will, that will grow. What What I think is really interesting about this is is that it was started by former Deliveroo people, and I, I'm interested in why them rather than insurance companies. Did it have insurance companies looked at this and decided they don't like this market, or have they just not looked at it and left a gap?
4: I, I think this is hard for for insurance companies. So, I mean, you, you know, when you go into an insurance company and there's a there's a normally a big sign on the wall in reception. And uh, and on and the sign will say personal lines to the left and commercial lines to the right. And these guys, <laughs> and they like, never
0: mix. <laughs> yes. Yeah,
4: I, I mean, even, even when they're in the canteen, they sit at separate tables. <laughs> and so you come along as an Uber driver or delivery driver is is actually the, the, the classic example because you know you you you're a moped driver who suddenly is running a is suddenly is running a business and uh, and you, so you want a policy which goes from personal lines to commercial lines and then switches back. And that's just a. It's technically difficult to do from a from a systems point of view because you know uh, all insurance policies except travel insurance are one year uh, a one year policies. I have no idea why, but that is but that's the truth, and it's hard coded into all of our systems. Uh, And b, you have this odd commercial lines, personal lines hybrid, so it doesn't fit. Anyway, nobody thinks it's really their job,
0: and also, I guess talking about systems. I mean, they say not necessarily their job, but even if the insurers have thought about it, given what I know about insurers' back-end systems, the likelihood of the two talking to each other to to create a hybrid would probably be very difficult as yeah, well.
4: Quite hard to do, and eventually, still a very small market. So I can put it off; it's not important. So
3: hard to do, but but here come two people with potentially no background insurance at all, and. and I've done it. Absolutely. Not that
1: hard. (laughs) Not that hard. This for me is not about insurance. This for me actually talks to the whole new gig or sharing economy, the the shift to this. So I don't think my kids will have a nine to five job that I've got or eight to six or whatever it might be these days, uh, but they might have five gigs. And that would be quite comfortable. They don't, they don't see the uncertainty of five gigs as, oh, it's really bad. They see it as, actually, if I want more money whatever else I'll do, I'll up the number of gigs I have at any one point in time or down them if I'm going to go, go elsewhere. I think this is actually what Metromile built originally, wasn't it? Because they had a, a policy that would, when there was a passenger on board, automatically flip to a commercial policy. And when the passenger wasn't on board, flip to a personal policy. Now, to your points, without question, there is no. Legacy carrier in the UK that I know that could do that today because it would involve multiple platforms, multiple systems. And to be honest, if you're charging per minute, three weeks later when you get the thing in the post to go, here's your cover for that one minute, you'll have used it three weeks ago. It doesn't exist. So I think this is a technology company that happens to be providing insurance, and in this instance, finding a niche in the market that is actually cover me for the risk I want to go. I want to go after. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think it's also really really great to see this kind of funding round because the gig economy market is just growing and these drivers, they do need different options. And if the legacy players aren't offering it, it's really great to see that startups are really getting the attention from investors so they can provide this kind of coverage. Did you by any chance to write a report on this recently? <laughs> I did, indeed. <laughs> Where can people find that report if they want to find it? On Business Insider's website.
1: Perfect. Um, i like to give people a chance to plug. <laughs> on, on the flip side, folks, folks, folks like AXA and others have done loads of work with... Uh, ride-sharing in certain countries. So I think they work with uh, Blah Blah Car in France and a few others. So depending on the risk per country and the appetite of the either group strategy or said execs in certain countries, they are going after certain types of business. So whether it's sharing economy, gig economy, renters or whatever else. um You mentioned the annual policy. The more we see, and the more the insurance that we have on, on the show, there's a shift more and more to usage-based monthly. If you look at, um, the lacquers of the world. have mentioned that as well. God. Um, who else is it? But, you know, uh, Jimmy, at Urban Jung. they all do monthly or subscription-based as opposed to give us the good old-fashioned year-long policy.
4: Yes. Our friends at risk are doing that. Yeah, completely. Um, and we're doing the Zego thing for um, for rideshare drivers with Buckle in the US. Right. You can't do it for rideshare drivers in the UK because um, the... The regulatory bodies will require you to be a full-time taxi driver, even if you're only doing it one hour a week. So you have to be full-time. You have to be full-time. Sure, but it works for food delivery in the in the UK because you don't have those same regulations. But it, but inevitably those regulations will change because you know most taxi drivers these days are Uber drivers and they're part-time.
3: And okay. That's a model. The, that the other interesting worked. question, and I guess this applies to technology companies in a lot of areas, is if at some point in the future the big incumbents decide they like this particular business model and they like this market, are they going to dominate that or, or will they be too late? Will it be the people Or they like just buy ZEGO. They, yeah, or just they partner buy up, yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah, and you'll need the tech. So yeah. Z- Zigo's big game is is when they start covering Amazon delivery drivers, which is the again a similar model. You know, uh, one guy in his van or one guy in his in, in his private car. At the moment, doing it using uh, using his private passenger auto insurance, um, w- w- which is technically illegal, and so eventually they have to clamp down on that. And if Zigo can be the technology that connects Amazon to the to the capacity provider, I would much rather be Zigo than the capacity provider.
1: This goes back to dropping back out of the direct to consumer, and consumer being handled by p- companies that can engage in the right way with the way people are consuming services, whether it's a house or driver or whatever else it might be, and then these guys become incapacity and nothing more.
0: All right, I'm gonna move us on. So the next story is um about our friends over at InsureTech UK. So InsureTech UK and the Department for International Trade have joined forces. So InsureTech UK, which is an alliance of 52 InsureTech startups, was um, joined by associate members of the insurance industry and service partners, has entered into a partnership with the UK's Department of International Trade. So back on episode 40, we actually had an InsureTech UK special, if anyone wants to go back and find out more about them there. Um, but this uh, partnership is, uh basically come about because both parties believe they can contribute towards their objective of making the UK the best place in the world for insurance. Um, Nigel's putting his hands up in the air. It's a podcast, it is. Nigel. Um, so the statement of intent, uh, is, you know, to go with the partnership includes yeah. agreements such as developing a wider, more inclusive process for insurtechs to access and influence future government led trade missions, uh, gathering information about the UK insurtech community, community to improve DIT's ability to attract international interest into the UK insurance market, um, co- coordinating webinars with foreign consulates. That sounds like fun. Um, creating cross-industry working group to focus on issues that affect the UK-wide insurance sector and the possibility, don't get too excited, guys, of a UK InsurTech Week in 2020. Uh, thoughts? Opinions?
3: I, I think it's all very promising. There's not much to, to dislike here. It, it's all very nice. But but as we mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the most famous InsurTechs out there has said that the UK gives him the heebie-jeebies at the moment because of Brexit. And I think until there's some clarity about that... Any insurtech or anyone else think of coming in here is going to have a question mark.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that I mean, unfortunately, the B word does have to dominate, particularly this kind of story. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. I know that the Department for International Trade has done a lot of work recently with Australia and the US um, for fintechs. So I wonder if those might be the markets they look at for uh, insurance as well, just because there are more knowns than unknowns you know, with those markets, um, you know, generally, we, you know, we talk about talking about funding, more international money into the UK insure, insure tech market is it's not a bad thing from my, from it, my it, opinion. For me,
1: it's it's great, right? The work that James and the team have done, uh, Niles on, on point uh, risk is fantastic. Uh, it's it's got to be a good thing. I think actually the insure techs have got quite strong pace already. What I don't want to see is that slowed down by engaging with um, other bodies that will then slow its pace down.
0: But, Webinars with consulates, you mean?
1: I didn't say that, but no, you did. Okay. <laughs> yes, they might slow it down. But, it, you know, equally, it's, it's going to be a good thing that we can just get out there and say, hey, here's why you come to the UK and what's going on. We have, a, we truly have the best and most vibrant community, in my mind, for InsurTechs. Germany would say the same thing. The US, West or East Coast will tell you the same thing. But there's some cool things going on here.
0: I think also um, we we kind of forget living in our little insurance bubble over here that um, insuretech is not as widely known about or heard of or, or spoken about even in the media they all of it does his best um, as fintech so actually having somebody to stand up and sort of shout about it um, and even even to put it to the forefront of important bodies minds whether that's consuls or regulators or anybody else can't can't hurt
4: yeah and that's all that's that's also true at uh, at government you know when I, when I was in I, consulting and in insurance regularly you read things about financial services and you know that they've written a report about banks and then just uh, and then just done find and replace and it says financial services <laughs> you know you know that lo- loads of reports during the financial crisis about about um about liquidity problems in financial services when, when in fact insurance <laughs> is entirely the opposite of banking so at least yeah something that says actually insurance is a thing on its own and it's not just not just a poor branch of of fintech then why not
3: I'm 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 interested in the overall aim here though. Is do they want to have more insurtech companies basing themselves in the UK or is the aim to get more innovative insurance products out to the UK population?
0: I think I think InsureTech UK's is both. I think the partnership with DIT is a case of we want more foreign insure techs maybe coming to the UK to stimulate competition and to make it easier for UK insure techs to expand abroad, a little bit like the FinTech bridges. Um, I know that both the the Treasury and the FCA are are looking at how to improve access to insurance at the same time. So, um, I mean, it's, it's just the problem is the B word causes so many barriers with this kind of thing But you know two years ago three years ago however long ago it was we probably would have been super excited by this and now we're just like oh there's, there's <laughs> yes, another but- barrier
1: in the way the yeah. but my, my other reservation is that we have so many bodies there's so many things as with uh, another regulatory body earlier today about some of the things that they're up to where they've copied the fca sandbox approach and yes it's all good but at some point we have to get to the customers not just go through all the bodies at the same point so for me it's a yes great great to see um i think If you look at what the FCA have done with the Sandbox, for example, fantastic. And plenty of InsurTechs have been through that already. And it's been copied by Singapore and elsewhere, as you guys all know. Um, So I think there's been quite a few InsurTechs that have been through that. Maybe we just need to chat about it better. And hopefully this will help.
0: Okay. Who wants to talk about both drones and mobility? Uh, This is the next story. Look, Nigel's eyes just – I was going to say his eyes perked up, but you know what I mean. So this is a story from Flock, which has launched the first real-time insurance and risk management product for drone fleets. So Flock Enterprise will help drone fleet operators take proactive steps to reduce drone flight risk and reward them with cheaper insurance premiums. So basically, if you behave better, your premium will go down. Um, The product leverages real-time data to provide highly bespoke insurance policies for enterprises using drones. Um, So Flock Enterprise, Prize um according to flock is the first product worldwide to offer real-time insurance for drone fleets um two episodes ago we had a whole episode on drone insurance so if you want to go back and have a listen to that uh, i recommend you do there was some awful puns the whole way through um not me surely none of which were written by producer laura i should put that out there um but uh, on this particular story we um spoke to ed leon Klinger, the ceo of flock to find out more
5: Hi 11FS, it's Ed here from Flock to tell you about the launch of Flock Enterprise, our brand new product. It's the world's first insurance product for connected drone fleets. Um, I'll tell you how it works. So at Flock, we're huge believers in the idea that if you can measure something, then you can manage it. And we apply that in the drone industry to risk. We provide drone pilots with a quantified understanding of the risks that they're undertaking on a per flight basis. Higher risk flights with bad weather conditions or in high population density areas will incur a larger risk score on our app. And therefore, they'll pay larger sums for their insurance premiums for that flight. Safer flights in less risky areas will receive a lower risk score and will pay less for their flights. We now insure thousands of businesses, SMEs and micro SMEs, through our app, Flock Cover, And we've issued over 500,000 quotes. And what we've seen is that our pilots are actively taking steps to mitigate and reduce their own risks so that they can save money on their insurance premiums and also operate safer, smarter businesses. What we're doing with Flock Enterprise is taking the same principle and technology and we're rolling it out to the world's largest organizations using drones. They're using connected drone fleets. So these are dozens of drones, often costing hundreds of thousands or millions of pounds. They're being flown globally by dozens of pilots and often for quite complex purposes, such as oil and gas inspections or agricultural surveys. And with the launch of Flock Enterprise, we're making our risk mitigation and risk quantification technology available to these larger enterprises, we're quantifying the risk of every single one of their flights, we're pricing those flights, and we're providing them with a bespoke insurance policy that's fully digital, that's data-driven, and that is priced based on the actual risk that these organizations are undertaking. We've just launched this product in collaboration with Allianz, our insurance partner, and in conjunction with the launch of our white paper, which outlines how the technology works and why we think it's the future of insurance for connected vehicles. And we're very excited to be talking about it here on 11FS. We'd love to come back in a few months' time when we've collected some data and provide you with an update as to how the product launch has gone. So thanks very much for having me and excited to be back.
1: I, I I love Flock. I love the brand. I love Ed. I love Anton. Flock E, like Wally, sorry Ed. Um, sounds really interesting. My observation, more broadly though, is: is insuretech the lowest common denominator to solving the core system challenge? I.e. Oh, well, we've had this
0: conversation yeah, before. It, I've just remembered. Right,
1: and, and all they're doing is taking more data points putting it through a better engine that's not legacy or whatever else and giving you more insight or more up-to-date pricing.
3: What is different?
1: I, I mean, I don't Different don't know. to what? Yeah. So what I could do today with a legacy platform.
3: So why aren't the others doing it with a legacy platform?
1: So is there not a big enough business for it?
3: Well, I mean, drone drone
4: insurance itself is a small market. Um, But again, from a, from a systems point of view, You've still got the you've still got the switch on switch off nature of this. Um, One thing that is different, we think in drones, and we played around with the uh, with the app again. I'm also a big fan of Flock. Um, One thing that is different is the the risk changes an awful lot, not depending on the operator, but depending on the conditions and and what's going on. We looked at using uh, a version of Flock for. for on-demand, for general aviation, for <laughs> private aviation, and the problem with private aviation is that um, uh, if you look at the if you look at the sort of risk per year, the risk per year of a of a pilot who flies more is less than the risk per year of a pilot who flies less because
2: the
0: hours you'd put in yeah
4: because if you don't fly very often then you then you're very likely <laughs> to crash yeah so the whole on demand thing doesn't work whereas in drones it does and and that makes you know as drone insurance is basically being done by the aviation market I, I think it's actually a systematically different kind of rest. I,
0: I just want to say that i quite like the idea of being able to use this for other types of vehicles as I well totally because there. the idea of i was i was reading something the other day about the m25 coming to complete standstill in that terrible rain we had because because people have more accidents in the rain they just do i mean there are not a lot of people who actually know how to drive in the rain and if they do they don't do it properly
3: so amazing in the uk that that would be the case <laughs>
0: We don't need
1: weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> we just need rain machines and snow machines, and we yeah. stop.
0: We st- yeah, I mean, but you know, I'm sure China's got a snow machine actually. Um, but just I, I like the idea of being able to use this type of insurance for other types of mobility. Is my point because the risk of driving a car does change when the weather conditions change, as it does with flying a drone. Uh,
1: and I think that's probably more. If they prove the technology with drones and drone enterprise, then I think actually, and we had the conversation before, I will say it now, things like scooters, should they ever be allowed to be in the UK? I think someone tweeted me a picture Sarah, of a delivery driver on an electric scooter, um, both illegal. Um, if you get to that sort of point and you can actually do four journeys like that, then I think that's quite exciting. And I know for a fact the carriers today don't have that capability. Modern platforms like this do. And you then start to look forward and go, well, is this a big enough business? Will it get acquired? Is it a subset of someone else's business or whatever else it might be?
3: I don't. Is it really exciting though? I'm just thinking if I had an insurance policy that, that will go up or down, depending on whether no I was in the wet or the dry or whether it was this road or that road… Does it not require people to think too much about insurance? And as I said before, people do not want to Mine think about insurance. It
0: would be it would be better off, maybe it'd be better off if you had an, at the same price, I don't think who does this, the same price every month, which is slightly higher than would be the lowest, but lower than would be the highest. And it kind of evens out as you go. So the person who's actually buying the insurance just pays, you know, whatever, it's £100 a month, which... Is calculated because they have all that data and they can use it to incorporate the likelihood of both flying in, in the rain and the dry. Because then, for the the customer and, and you know, I think the people who are running um, drone fleets are are still customers. They're not insurance people at the end of the day, are they? They still like how much is it going to cost? What's the cheapest way of doing this? What do I have to legally insure? I've done you're right that kind of what we can be excited by the clever back end and that's fine but maybe the clever back end needs to be disguised by a a more simple pricing mechanism
1: all all, none of us in this around this table today are impeded by not being able to do it yet if i was a farmer that relied on seeing whether or not the crop was ripe or not and that was a 24-hour window having the ability to send a drone out and do that sort of stuff actually is really important to getting the most yield from my crops at that point in time. So I, I can see the uses of it without without a shadow of a doubt. And there's some really cool things out there. My worry, of all, as always with these things, is can I create a big enough business on it?
0: All right. We're going to keep talking about the weather. Um, our final story today is that flood defences save billions on insurance annually. This is kind of a good, good news story for once. Inland flood defences save the UK £1.1 billion a year. So apparently um, that uh, that amount of, of a year of flood damage is being prevented by the UK's current network of river barriers and defences, um, according to new research unveiled today at the uh, ABI conference. James Dalton, director of general insurance policy at the ABI, said, "Faced with the growing threat of climate change, there is a clear financial argument for further investment in flood defences. It's essential that the UK's government sticks to its ambitions on flood defence spending, and it doesn't let the lack of severe flooding in recent years lull the country into a false sense of security." Um, I mean, I think the point is the defences we have work fine now, but we all know the weather is getting more extreme. I don't think we have any climate change deniers in the room. Um, you know, we've just seen in the fact the last week or so before we recorded this podcast, we had some. Places in Lincolnshire, we're getting a month's rain in two days. So I think to me, this is is it's kind of a from the insurance perspective, it's a case of please help us make sure that we can continue to insure people. Um, and in fact, there's um somebody will tell me around the table who is the flood reinsurer that's specially set up for just floods. Flood rate. flood rain. Flood rain. Why do you think of that?
3: Reinsurers you are never so have guessed, you? <laughs> reinsurers <laughs> named
0: so simple. I don't know why I could get there. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, flood defence is good. Insurers happy, people happy. Government needs to spend more on flood defences. It? But, but
3: also, but also, it's it, it's quite a a kind of technical question of how do you best do flood defences. Is, it's got to be about more than sandbags when the when the rivers are breaking their banks, and there's various controversies about if you're in a flood-prone area, should you be paying farmers to allow their floods fields to be flooded upriver so that it never reaches the cities? Within the cities, are we paving over our front drives too much? Not having enough grass to absorb water, yes. that kind of thing. It, <laughs> or should we just stop building houses near floods? Typically, or water?
0: Does that not mean that we need? I mean, don't we currently have a housing? Crisis at the moment. We
1: have them for how many decades? And we also have
4: a lot of brown land. Yes, it's just that's that true. Land yes. that's right next to rivers is more attractive.
0: Yes.
3: Bloodry you... doesn't cover newly built houses. So in theory, okay. newly built houses in their insurance should reflect the the fact that floodry won't cover it and so the the insurance will be more expensive and that in theory should be reflected in the price of the house.
1: And didn't didn't they, isn't it, was it £6 per policy in the UK everyone contributes towards as a result of floodry on average? Is that 6 or £8? It's it's a small amount, but people, you, you could argue, why am I living in the middle of London and paying towards someone else's flood re-policy because they have the desire to live next to a beautiful water feature
3: well is it helping wealthy people in berkshire who love to live next to a beautiful water feature or is it helping less wealthy people who can't afford to move
0: and and at the same time as well i mean why i mean i'm i'm still grumpy that the eu said that i don't i have to pay the same car insurance as a young man my age you know why am i paying for young men who are statistically more likely to have accidents um
1: thank you
4: uh She said young men. Oh, i right. sorry, sorry. I
0: knew you were going to say it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing as well. I, I had this amazing anecdote about people who, uh, a housing developer who had built houses on a floodplain and they knew they were going to build a floodplain so they had built them up on stilts so the houses had stilts to let the water come through um, and there was a carport underneath, but, you know, the, the actual first floor of the house or ground floor of the house was, was up, upper floor. And I said, this is fine because it means that even if they do get flooded, A, you know, less damage will be done to the property and B, the water will be able to move back and forwards. The first thing that everybody did when they moved into these houses was brick up the gaps at the bottom because they wanted <laughs> an extra story. <laughs> and so the, the, the developer was like, well, that's not our problem. Like we did what we were supposed to do. So again, it's that kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all very well saying the government needs to spend money on flood defence but also this is the consumers you know, common they, sense must prevail yeah. well, then their insurance was completely invalid because they'd bricked up these walls and so the natural flood defences were, were gone
3: there's a lot of work actually on flood resilient housing if you're living in a flood prone area how do you make your house less prone to damage if there is a flood and it's about what you build the walls out of how far up the walls your sockets are whether you can move your sofa upstairs quickly all that kind of stuff I went you to see a house in, the in Watford a couple The sockets halfway up ago.
0: the wall is um, something that I hadn't thought of before, but it makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, if
3: you think about it, light switches come down, sockets go up. So
1: you want things both coming down in that
3: instance.
0: Yeah. Sorry, you are going to tell an anecdote then?
3: Huh? Uh, dudes, in um, in Watford at BRE, they do research on buildings. They built a house deliberately to flood it and see what would happen when they put all these resilient measures in.
1: And just a uh, quick link back to the drone story. If I was literally on LinkedIn the other day, and there it was, a, a clip from... Um, the recent floods in the uk from one of the uh, tpa the, th- the third party administrators showing the extent of the damage from a drone i thought how cool is that people can now physically see very quickly in 4k beautiful video it had a really cheesy music by the way but um but it was a really good video to see uh, the actual extent of the damage why is that better than a helicopter we used to be able to see those from helicopters how much does it cost to deploy a helicopter versus hundreds of drones mm,
0: fair all right that wraps up our new show this week thank you so much to everyone for joining me where can our listeners find out more about you
1: Nigel I'm on Nigel Walsh at Twitter
0: at Nigel Walsh on Twitter
1: I'm at (laughs) (laughs) I'm on Twitter at Nigel Walsh
2: (laughs) thank you Leah Uh, Twitter at Leah Nonninger Uh, Oliver
3: you can read my articles on FT.com and on Twitter I am at Oliver underscore Ralph
0: and Andy
4: I'm on Twitter at Andrew Ria
0: perfect and you can find me on twitter at sarah kuchanski um that wraps up another Tech insider thank you so much to all our guests to leah oliver andy and ed at flock as always you can find the show on twitter at Intertech insiders and if you like what you've heard this week don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please please leave us a review on itunes if you have any suggestions or feedback please reach out on twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com